I'm Daryl Brugging, and welcome to the 26th episode of our No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Getting to Know the Trillions of Friends Underfoot, is being brought to you by TopCon Agriculture. If this is your first time listening, I encourage you to subscribe to this podcast currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to get an alert when upcoming episodes are released. If you have another app you use for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. Thanks to TopCon Agriculture for sponsoring today's episode. From planning to precision machine control, Norax boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, TopCon Agriculture offers the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4-hour nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit TopConPositioning.com backslash growing solutions to learn more about how TopCon Agriculture application solutions make agronomy work for you. Time and again, no-tillers have proven that they have a genuine interest on in what's going on below the field surface. Where some farmers call the ground they farm dirt, almost as if it's something negative and a hindrance to their farming efforts, no-tillers call it soil and genuinely and properly look at that ground as life. Jennifer Moore Cusera can attest to the fact that the soil is very much alive with life. Today in our No-Till Farmer podcast, the soil health leader for the National Resources Conservation Service shares just how much life is underfoot and offers her thoughts on how no-tillers can help manage that life in the soil so that it benefits crop production and helps sustain our very lives. So to begin with, just to define soil health, the continued capacity of the soil to function as a vital living ecosystem that sustains plants, animals, and humans. The healthy soils maintain a diverse community of soil organisms that help keep the system working efficiently. By functions, what we're talking about uh, in relation specifically to the soil organisms includes controlling plant disease, insect and weed pests, these organisms, especially microbes, form beneficial symbiotic association with plant roots that help support the plants through efficient uptake of nutrients and water, as well as disease uh, protection. These organisms are essential for recycling plant nutrients, improving soil structure that helps improve soil, water, and nutrient holding capacity. And ultimately, when all of these systems and processes are working optimally, improve crop production and, and quality of that crop. Uh, a healthy soil also contribute, contributes at national and global scales by affecting the gases in our atmosphere and by maintaining or increasing its carbon content. And there was a recent publication put out by the American Society of Microbiology where they provide and outline a lot of strategies on how microbes can help feed the world. And that's the focus of this presentation today. So many challenges stem from poor soil health, and some of the indicators of poor soil health don't require a soil test at all. We can see um, in the field soil crusting, sealing, cracking. This reduces water use and filtration and storage, as well as groundwater recharge. Runoff on fallow ground can have negative impacts on water quality of surface water, 
and also reduces that groundwater recharge. Pro poor crop productivity due to disease pressure or inability to resist drought and floods are all obvious signs of poor soil health. Basically, the system has stopped functioning properly. Sometimes poor soil quality or soil health affects yield and quality of the crop, and other times the negative impacts are hidden because of the increased input that can compensate for an otherwise reduced reduction in yields and qualities. Um, and also, uh, the trade-offs are recognized during times of stress, or they exist in negative impacts on air and water, and especially are recognized recognize following efforts that target improvements of soil health. So sometimes you don't know what you can get until you, you get there. So one of the first steps toward improved soil health and a more efficient and higher functioning system is to change our perspective. So we have done an amazing job of improving crop health and productivity and above ground management options are abundant with variety choices of crops that are more resistant to pathogens, um, more cold or, or heat tolerance, et cetera. We have a variety of choices in what fertilizer types we can apply and the delivery systems to apply them. We have very efficient irrigation systems and a whole array of options um, in various parts of the country. However, what has been neglected in our management plans is this below ground life. Just like icebergs that hide most of their mass below the surface, most ecosystems concentrate their biomass below ground. In fact, if you add up all of the biomass of the below ground organisms with all of the biomass of the above ground organisms, trees, plants, humans, elephants, etc., the scale would tip dramatically to the side of the below ground world. However, we often don't think about this sort of out of sight, out of mind. It is this life force that creates resiliency which in this article by Lehman and others is defined as a, a resilient soil is capable of recovering from or adapting to stress and the health of the living biological component of the soil is crucial for soil resiliency. This is important as we are faced with the grand challenge of producing more food and fiber on less land and under pressures of more frequent and intense weather events. Building resiliency into your system by focusing on supporting life below ground will help maximize productivity through maximizing water use efficiency. It'll increase nutrient use efficiency to make the most of the organic and inorganic fertilizer sources we add, as well as optimize the internal cycling that occurs during the breakdown of crop and animal residues. A more resilient system will help plants resist pathogens and stress, resist erosive forces of wind and water, and keep our precious topsoil where the majority of the life exists as well as those fertilizers and other agrochemicals and amendments that we apply. So what kind of biodiversity, what are, who are these critters that exist below ground and how abundant are they? Well, soils are described as the, as the most biologically diverse ecosystem on earth. In fact, they contain over one quarter of all of the biodiversity on earth. Um, in, a, in 10 square feet of healthy soil, this might support 10 trillion bacteria, 100 billion fungi, 10 billion protozoa, and the list goes on and on and gets a little bit smaller as we increase in organism size. Putting that on a biomass perspective and pounds per acre, an acre of healthy soil, there may be up to 
27,000 pounds of microbial and other organisms, fauna, earthworms, protozoa, that exist in the soil. Um, and the numbers that are presented are not exact, they're just estimates. And I report them on the higher end to emphasize the abundance in both numbers and mass to illustrate this concept. There's a wide range in values, but in general, healthy soils have anywhere from 20,000 to 30,000 pounds of life below ground that supports life above ground. That's equivalent to anywhere from 16 to 20 cows above ground per acre. So by appreciating this vast diversity and the, all the functions that they serve, we can develop management systems that tap into the millions and billions of years of evolution that have optimized the interactions between plants, animals, and microbes. So one of the key concepts I'd like you to take away from this presentation is that soil organisms, that life force, the 27,000 pounds of biomass that exists below ground, are involved in all aspects of how soils function, from transforming plant animal residues into soil organic matter, creating that great crumb structure uh, that resists the erosive forces of, of water and wind, and also facilitates the flow of water and air exchange. They are the drivers of nutrient cycling, and I'll have more to say about that in a minute. They protect plants from pathogens and stress, enhance plant growth through symbiotic associations and other plant growth stimulating processes, and they detoxify pollutants. So this is the short list um, just to combine some of the major functions that soil organisms perform. And there are a variety of ways, and we could spend an entire webinar just going through the different organisms, who they are, how many there are, and what they do. Um, but one of the nice ways that I've found um, through this uh, publication is to broadly categorize them into three functional groups, the chemical engineers, the biological regulators, and the ecosystem engineers. So if we do this and, and kind of lump them into these categories, recognizing that there's ebbs and flows across categories. There's, there's not exclusive groups by any means. But the chemical engineers are really your microbial community, the bacteria, fungi, this unique group called the archaea, as well as even viruses. These organisms regulate 90% of the energy flow that stimulates plant growth and even makes antibiotics to, to save human life. The biological regulators are a little bit bigger in size uh, the protozoa, small invertebrates such as nematodes, potworms, springtails, and mites. These organisms are important for regulating the population of the other soil organisms like bacteria and fungi. They do this through grazing, predation, or parasitism. And the ecosystem engineers, these are the organisms like plant roots, earthworms, the larger organisms that create their own habitat through digging and, and, and burrowing into the soil also includes millipedes, centipedes, beetles, etc. They form the pore networks and biostructures that aid in aggregation, as well as distributing different organic uh, pieces from the surface to below ground, as well as transporting microorganisms, such as through the passage of bacteria uh, through the guts of earthworms, for example. So all of these organisms work together um, 
as I mentioned earlier, one gram of soil can contain 10 million or more bacteria with hundreds to thousands of different species in that one gram. One acre may have 10,000 pounds of fungi and miles and miles of hyphae. Could have the equivalent weight of two sheep of protists or rabbits of mice. An acre can contain 200 pounds of nematodes, and the list goes on and on. It's this complex web of interactions between and among all of these organisms that is largely driven by plants and algae, and to a lesser extent, certain bacteria that capture the solar energy and use it to convert CO2 into sugars through photosynthesis. This builds biomass and basically fuels the soil organisms and the warehouse of much of this energy is stored ultimately in the form of soil organic matter. So the roots help support or, uh, organic entities and, and chemicals that stimulate the populations of all these organisms that interact and work together to support all of those functions I just outlined. Where do they live in soils? Well, on a volume basis, the majority occur in these what's called microbial hotspots. And although only one to 5% of soil volume in the topsoil is, is occupied by these microbial hotspots, the abundance of organisms that are found there and their functional rates or what they're doing, the decomposition, the nitrification, et cetera, uh, enzyme activities that cycle nutrients can be up to 100 times faster in these hotspots than in the bulk soil. This is where the active, micro, the active organisms are stimulated and provide most of the functions I outlined. And all of these are driven by the flow of labile or that readily available pool of carbon. So some of the hot spots include the detritosphere. This is the layer at the surface of organic residues, plant residues, animal residues that as they break down, create um, a rich environment for microbial and other soil organism life. The rhizosphere is the zone that's right around the roots. And as roots grow, they're sloughing off cells and releasing uh, really uh, easily degradable compounds, like sugars and small amino acids, uh, small molecular weight that can be taken up by the microbes. This stimulation can create biofilms around the roots of bacteria. And then protozoa come in and start grazing the bacteria and fungi extend from the plant roots. It's a, it's a real hot spot of activity right around the growing root tip. Biopores are another form of uh, microbial hot spots. These um, can be created through the burrowing actions of earthworms. Uh, so they create larger pore spaces and channels that distribute those organic residues from the surface to lower areas in the in the uh, soil profile. And uh, uh, aggregate surfaces are also um, microbial hotspots. The aggregates are the soil particles and organic matter arranged in a three-dimensional space, and it's along those surfaces and then between those pore spaces where microorganisms and other life exist. And the main reason that soil is so diverse is because of the diversity of this habitat. So within very short distances, for example, in the rhizosphere or in different aggregates and pore sizes, we can go from an aerobic, fully aerobic and oxygenated area to complete anaerobic conditions. Those uh, pH can vary in very small scales. The access of different carbon sources to feed and fuel the organism can change 
in very short distances. And, and it's this diversity of all of the arrangements of the space and sizes that can create hiding spots for smaller organisms to evade predation from larger organisms. And these chemical and temperature and other gradients that exist is the real reason why bi the soils are home to a quarter of the world's soil biodiversity. So hopefully I've given you a good overview of the importance of soil biology, how they impact plant growth and productivity. Um, but let's talk about how we can manage for soil biology. We'll get back to Jennifer in just a minute, but I wanted to take a moment to once again thank our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for supporting our No-Till Farmer podcast series. From planning to precision machine control, NORAX boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, TopCon Agriculture offers the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit topconpositioning.com backslash growing solutions to learn more about how Topcon Agriculture application solutions make agronomy work for you. How about these numbers that Jennifer shares about life in the soil? 10 square feet of healthy soil might support 10 trillion bacteria, 100 billion fungi, 10 billion protozoa, and more. And an acre of healthy soil may hold up to 27,000 pounds of microbial organisms and other living critters like earthworms and protozoa. How important are they? Jennifer says they're the drivers of nutrient cycling. They protect plants from pathogens and stress. They enhance and stimulate plant growth and they detoxify pollutants. Let's rejoin Jennifer as she explains some of the things that no-tillers can do to help that life underfoot thrive. The first step is to provide the fuel. Again, this process begins with photosynthesis and the transformation of plant residues into organic matter. But recently, how we view organic matter is changing. In the traditional view, it relies on the formation of the, what's called these stable humus products. Um, it observes organic matter properties and alkaline extracts um, that really don't exist in, in nature uh, when you get at the molecular level of organic matter. Um, and scientists are now beginning to realize um, this emerging view that focuses on microbial access to, um, to soil organic matter. And overall, it emphasizes the need to manage carbon flows rather than carbon pools. So what's fueling the microorganisms and the biology below ground is the flow of carbon in different forms, different labile or active pools of carbon that's stimulating that microbial population. The stable component of, or, or the more passive uh, pool of carbon is, is certainly important and, and helps in carbon sequestration and water and, uh, and nutrient dynamics, but it's the flow of those labile pools of carbon uh, that is so important that stimulates uh, the, the microorganisms keeping the system going. By focusing on how to maximize this flow of carbon through soil and through the life and death cycles of the soil organisms, 
will better be able to create healthy soils and sustainable land use systems. So there was recently a, a nice presentation by Keith Burns, you can look for it um, on the internet, where he put soil carbon into economic terms. And he basically outlined it as carbon can be collected through photosynthesis, spent or traded to soil organisms, saved in the form of soil, soil organic matter, and is universally desired by all members of the economy. So how do we best capture and collect that carbon? And how do we facilitate the trading below ground through the different um, soil, soil taxa? The NRCS has come up with four soil health principles. Um, these include to minimize disturbance, to maximize soil cover, to maximize the duration of living roots, and to maximize diversity. And I further condense that into really two principles, and that is to protect and feed. We, on the right-hand side, we're minimizing disturbance and maximizing soil cover. This protects soil aggregates and soil organic matter. It reduces erosion and runoff risk. By covering the soil, we're buffering temperature, we're keeping water and nutrients in the root zone, and reducing leaching losses. These principles on the right-hand side, minimizing disturbance and maximizing cover focus on the protection of the microbial habitat, namely soil organic matter, or sorry, soil aggregates and organic matter. On the left-hand side, the other two principles are to maximize the principle of the presence of continuous living roots and maximize the diversity in the system. This can this maximizing diversity can be through the addition of crop rotations, cover crop mixes, as well as the integration of animals on the landscape. These principles aim to provide those diverse labile carbon sources throughout the year, as well as the biochemicals that fuel the soil organisms and stimulate the plant microbe interaction. When we do this, we, we, um, the results are to break disease cycles and increase not just maintain soil organic matter, such as the minimizing disturbance and maximizing cover principles on the right-hand side, by feeding the soil organisms below ground through a continuous supply of carbon through exudates and the decomposition of materials in, in the plant and animal residues, we enhance that internal nutrient cycling. We capture more of the nutrients that are applied and, and hold on to them for future use uh, by plants keeping them out of, out of the groundwater and surface waters, for example. And we also increase predator and pollinator populations. Doing this promotes the complex food web to enhance nutrient cycling. It stimulates the microbial population and predators to build organic matter. That more that increase in organic matter provides nutrient retention and less off-site losses, as well as storing nitrogen, phosphorus, in the microbial populations themselves, as well, finally, as selecting for microbes to protect plants. But the overall goal is to choose practices that feed soil organisms and protect their habitat, um, and apply management practices with a purpose. So we're, we'll, being in agriculture, we're going to need to add in, inputs to the soil. We might need to address a, a pathogen or a disease pressure but we always want to make sure that whatever choice we're making, it has a purpose, and, and it's because we're reacting to 
um, a different uh, system and we're building resiliency so that we can stimulate a, an internal resiliency and protection within the system. Uh, also, many recommended agriculture practices tend to be um, more cookbook-like or uh, sometimes based on rapid tests that target single issues rather than systems orientated. And we're addressing systems, not the underlying causes. Uh, and this really creates the short-term perspective that doesn't really create that resiliency and build all of the organisms and life in a, in a highly functioning system. But what we need to develop are soil health management systems. How do we do that? We can do that through plant choices uh, with enhanced crop diversity or intercropping. We can apply living mulches, including nitrogen-fixing legumes in our cover crops. We can couple how we uh, choose plants and above-ground inputs with soil man management practices that reduce uh, tillage and reduce disturbance. Mulching uh, can also be a, a practice that can sustain the soil organisms and leads to organic matter formation, habitat formation for biological communities, and enhanced internal nutrient cycling. At the microbiome level, we can integrate plant breeding and rhizosphere microbiome management. This could be through the selection of nitrification, nitrification inhibitors, inoculation with beneficial organisms, fostering arbustium mycorrhizal communities, these all lead to enhanced nutrient use efficiency, reduced nutrient losses, plant health, plant resistance, and drought resistance. So one of the main ways to minimize disturbance is to convert from uh, continuous and intensive tillage practices to no-till. When we till, we're breaking up aggregates and exposing pieces of carbon that were previously protected um, from degradation. We're also stimulating the micro, microbial community because we're chopping pieces into smaller pieces that gives greater access and surface area for degradation to occur. And we're also releasing a lot of oxygen into the system that really stimulates the microbial communities that exist. Um, and by practicing no-till, organic matter concentrations have overall shown to just increase a little slightly over time. But coupling no-till with other practices such as cover crops or other technologies through organic amendments and intensification of agroecosystems through crop rotations and uh, uh, intercropping strategies, we can actually begin to rebuild organic carbon concentrations in our soils. But no-till alone is really not the answer. Uh, from a carbon cycling perspective, as well as from a lot of different ecosystem uh, benefits. Uh, we have to replace that carbon that's lost through harvest. Looking at from the uh, below ground biomass, no-till favors greater earthworm and mycorrhizal populations and nematode shift to fungal feeders, as well as greater overall biomass. So in this slide, the size of the box represents the size of the community. So in this case, no-till with the protection of plant residues on the surface stimulates those fungi, the saprophytic fungi that degrade those plant residues. The fungi also uh, stimulate through the uh, release of different carbon uh, compounds as they degrade the plant residues, stimulates the microarthropods. These could be springtails uh, and mites, for example. And the nematodes are then feeding on the fungi 
again, being that biological regulator. And in a no-till system, one of the biggest groups that increase are earthworm populations because they're larger organisms um, and they're more susceptible to um, uh, disturbance through tillage practices. And on the other side, all these groups, the smaller boxes, are in lesser proportions of so bacteria, the protozoa, the nematodes that feed on bacteria. This side is much lower and abundant than the larger boxes. That's in contrast to tillage, which increases bacteria and their predators, um, including protists and nematodes shift from the fungal feeders to the bacterial feeders. And in general, there's an overall reduction in uh, the amount of microbial biomass. And again, here's the earthworm population that's much smaller now in the tilled fields than in the no-till fields. So we, we shift the population, we reduce the overall microbial biomass, and by reducing the overall size and the composition of this community, we weaken how the system operates. Another issue um, for managing biology is managing the nitrogen cycle, as shown here. Um, and what I'd like you to recognize is that all of the different steps of the nitrogen cycle, whether we're creating ammonium, uh, nitrate, uh, or denitrifying that back to the atmosphere, as well as nitrogen fixation uh, in, in legumes, uh, root nodules, they're all driven by the actions of the microorganisms, and primarily the bacteria uh, in many of these steps, but also fungi are extremely important in the decomposition and the conversion of that organic material into ammonium, uh, which is plant available. What I'd also like you to recognize is that a large amount of fertilizer, no matter what initial form, goes through this microbial community before the plants get it. Um, that's also reflected in nitrogen use efficiency, um, anywhere from 30 to 70% for nitrogen uh, in annual crops, as reported in this um, analysis. Phosphorus can be even lower at 5 to 40%. So how can we stimulate and, and, and tap into, how can we better time the release of these processes and, and create the, an internal cycling of nitrogen to help increase this nitrogen use efficiency to be higher than 30% on the landscape? Um, what practices can we do to stimulate this? Um, before we go there, just I always get a, a lot of questions about does long-term use of fertilizers affect soil microorganisms? There's this, a really nice article by um, Dan Geisler and uh, Kate Scow at a UC Davis, where they did a they looked at a whole bunch of studies across in the literature, and they found that long-term use of mineral fertilizers actually increased organic carbon content. And because of that, because of that stimulation of the organic carbon fuel, it also resulted in an increase in microbial biomass. Um, there were some exceptions that they found um, for a small sample set with urea and anhydrous ammonia, which tended to reduce microbial biomass uh, compared to other, other types of fertilizers. Um, but in addition to just increases or decreases in the biomass, there's unknown effects on community composition. So we know that when we add nitrogen in different sources, we're altering 
the, the composition of, of plant communities and growth stages of the plant. And there's a lot of evidence that shows that by, by um, changing our nitrogen application rates, we can actually change the composition of that microbial community. And that's been shown to have impacts on how well the plants take up nitrogen as well as uh, uh, productivity through yields. And other considerations that the authors point out are that other agrochemicals decrease some groups while selecting for others. Some chemicals are very negative to certain organisms, whereas others, such as bacteria, can thrive on that degraded chemical or bloom after application. Um, and then finally, many fertilizer concentrations are too high for the symbiosis to work most efficiently. One of the um, most important symbiotic relationships is that between bacteria and plant roots uh, that fix nitrogen. So photosynthesis releases sugars for the microbes that then form nodules inside um, along the plant roots. And specialized bacteria that live in those nodules convert the nitrogen from the atmosphere into ammonia, and, which can be used by the plants. So this can supply anywhere from 20 to 75 pounds in cropland and up to 200 pounds per acre in natural uh, systems. And there's also, in addition to the symbiotic relationships in, in legume-type uh, crops, there are also free-living fixers that are also important, but not inside of plant roots. These include organisms called cyanobacteria, azotobacteria, and azospirillum. Um, and these organisms tend to be a little bit more sensitive to tillage and disturbance as their populations tend to be much lower in those uh, management practices than in no-till or conservation tillage practices. So managing the nitrogen cycle means managing for biology. Similarly, managing for phosphorus means managing for biology. Phosphorus is unique because it binds to aluminum and iron at low pH and to calcium and magnesium at high pH. When it does this, it forms a precipitate that's not available for plant uptake. The most available soluble form of phosphorus occurs at pH of six to seven. So if you're out of that range, you can develop some phosphorus deficiencies, even though the total phosphorus in your soil can be uh, measured as very high. And that's largely this binding of phosphorus to these minerals is the main reason why phosphorus efficiencies can be as low as 5% in certain crops. The good news is, is by cho uh, choosing practices that stimulate bacteria and fungi, there are certain and specialized bacteria that solubilize phosphorus. There's also specialized fungi that do this through the release of enzymes and different acids that can release the stored organic phosphorus and mineral phosphorus. So how to increase efficiency and minimize losses? The timing of nitrogen and phosphorus fertilizer is not in sync with plant needs. So on this left-hand side is the natural internal cycling of nutrients through the degradation of organic material in the biomass, the, um, the biomass that eats those microorganisms, and the other predators that eat those middle-sized organisms. As this, these materials and organisms are degraded and decomposed, they release nutrients to the soil um, in water-soluble form that's then taken up by plants. So phosphorus fixation is high, so erosion potential is high, and, and runoff is high, especially in those soluble forms. 
There's also high potential for losses due to leaching, runoff, and gases. And as I already explained, low nitrogen use efficiency in, in uh, various crops contributes to this. So we can increase the efficiency and reduce input by maximizing biological pathways, maximizing what's happening on this left-hand green side below the ground. We can do this by increasing biomass with carbon input, by increasing the life that's below ground, they can compete with bacteria for ammonium and retain more nitrogen. In fact, 50 pounds of nitrogen is stored within the microbial biomass on an acre basis. By increasing the microbial biomass, we're increasing the chances of those bacteria and fungi that can solubilize and release more phosphorus from rock form and mineral forms. By promoting numbers higher in the food web, by minimizing disturbance and creating and feeding those organisms um, throughout the year, we increase and promote members that are higher in the food web. When, they, when these organisms graze on the microbial biomass, that 50 pounds of nitrogen per acre is then released and made available for plant growth. So the grazing and predation of microbes releases a substantial amount of nutrients to the uh, soil system. Promoting mycorrhizal fungi and leguminous crops are other ways that we can stimulate those symbiotic associations in the soil. Manim managing for bio biology also manages for stable aggregates that results in increased water infiltration, drainage, and aeration. So again, by stimulating and choosing plant, uh, plant roots and a diversity of different types of plants, we stimulate different types of organisms below ground that helps create these fungal uh, networks that help enmesh and uh, like a hairnet encapsulates soil particles, holding them in place. Uh, different uh, proteins are released by soil organisms uh, as, as well as through decomposition pathways that are very sticky and help hold aggregates together. And bacteria themselves also release stick sticky, gooey substances. Here's a bacterial rod releasing some sticky substance that is holding on to this um, mineral surface here. When they work in concert, they increase the aggregation that increases macropores, that increases the amount of water that can infiltrate into the soil. It also stores more water because of that increase in pore size uh, and aggregation. In contrast, in a poorly aggregated soil, we've developed sealing and crusting and, and, and a decrease in the amount of water that can infiltrate the soil with an increase in runoff, leading to problems on water quality, for example. So cover crops are one of the great uh, tools and practices that we can deploy that really addresses all of the soil health principles. Um, an example of it them serving as nutrient traps to try to recover some of the nitrogen that has been leached down through the profile. Um, this is uh, one example of how much they can absorb. So there's different cropping systems shown here, carrot, spinach, potato, and lettuce, and then different winter cover crops that were employed. Um, and then they measured how much uh, nitrogen was in the soil before the uh, cover crop was planted. Uh, in the case of spinach, a, a whopping 800 kilograms per hectare, it's a huge amount. Um, but the good news is, is by planting cover crops with their deep roots, they can acquire and absorb and trap those nutrients, bringing them back up to the surface in the plant biomass. 
Um, and then that's released more slowly over time through decomposition pathways. So in almost all instances, there was a significant reduction in the amount of nitrogen that was left over um, in the springtime following the cover crop. And so these, these systems, here's one example of a major benefit uh, of cover crops that can address water quality issues, for example. There's also evidence that cover crops enhance microbial characteristics and improve yields. Um, additional uh, in veg vegetable systems and sandy soils. Um, been choosing these as the examples because they're very intensive management and they tend to be more challenged by uh, some of the soil health practices. But by increasing the amount of fresh uh, plant materials from cover crop, these researchers found um, a variety of enhanced microbial characteristics from biomass to enzyme activity to microbial diversity. And all of these were enhanced more so from the carbon inputs um, in the cover crop than that applied simply from compost. In addition, vegetable yields were greater in these frequently covered crop systems compared to those infrequently covered crop, regardless of compost inputs. So the take-home message from this study was that cover crop and cover crop um, cropping systems, the more frequent you uh, can deploy them, the more benefits that can be realized. Um, and this is coming at, at the offset of compost inputs. Um, so there's a lot of different types of cover crops, and uh, cover crops provide these multiple benefits. Uh, again, they address all four of the soil health principles. So they're uh, one of the best tools you can consider as part of your soil health management system, more organic matter or weed suppression. Uh, so some of the benefits are listed here. First, they maximize the on-form capture of solar energy to fuel the food web, capturing it during the otherwise fallow period where the sun's energy is lost on bare ground. Um, by adding cover crops, we're adding diversity. And this can be at multiple levels, depending on the cover crop mix uh, that you design. Or increasing nitrogen use efficiency by minimizing nitrogen leaching losses during the winter uh, through the, the trapping of those uh, nutrients that I just showed you. And they're providing continuous inputs of that active labile carbon that stimulates the microbial community in those hot spots we talked about earlier. And of course, they protect the soil from winter runoff and erosion potential. And through the stimulation of those active microbial populations and above ground diversity can help fight off pathogens and disease pressures and help support plants uh, during stressful times, such as incidents of drought, extreme temperatures, or reductions in water quality and quantity. So cover crops are really one of the best tools that you can explore in designing a management strategy. Thanks again to Jennifer Moore Cusera for sharing details about the life that exists underneath our feet and stressing the importance of preserving that soil biology and the steps to increase and improve it. And thanks to TopCon Agriculture for making this podcast series possible. We'll be back with our next episode in the No-Till Farmer podcast series on Friday, October 13. If you enjoyed learning from Jennifer on all the ins and outs of soil biology, you might want to visit the No-Till Farmer website at notillfarmer.com. Scroll over the resources link on the menu bar toward the top of the homepage and click on webinars. 
You'll find more details in slides to review from Jennifer's webinar entitled, Getting to Know the Trillions of Friends Underfoot, Focus on Soil Life. Again, thanks to our sponsor, TopCon Agriculture, for helping make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletters. And be sure to follow us on our No-Till Farmer Facebook page and on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R. For Jennifer Moore Cusera, TopCon Agriculture, and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Executive Editor Daryl Brugink. Thanks for listening.